There are two Bible readings this morning. Uh, the first of these is from the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31. Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maiden servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. The second of our Bible readings is in the New Testament, from the Gospel according to Mark. So would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30 faith of a Syrophoenician woman. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive, out, drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, it's great to, to be in a congregation that really sings their hearts out. So it's really nice to be back and uh, to see such a, a lovely congregation sitting so comfortably, and uh, not too comfortably, I hope. <laughs> and I, I'd like to just draw your attention to the... Um, the passage, the New Testament passage that we read just now, and I want to talk to you about that, that passage. Uh, Carl Henry was the editor of uh, Christianity Today, and he said something very interesting. He said, some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. Some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. 
Now that's literally true of this woman that we're going to think about this morning. She's a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician by birth. Uh, So we're told there in verse 26. Geographically, she lived just outside the borders of Israel, the promised land. And spiritually, as I hope we'll see this morning, she was not far from the kingdom. She lived just round the corner from the world of truth. The trouble is most of us are quite content to stay there, aren't we? Because the truth can be difficult to live with and we have a thousand and one ways of avoiding it. So we're quite happy to continue living just round the corner from the world of truth. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning, just round the corner. Not, not quite there yet, not totally committed to Jesus yet. Still checking things out. I mean, if that's you, it's great that you're here this morning under the word. But you, you're still round the corner, still keeping a distance. You haven't come in yet. And my hope and prayer is, if that is you this morning, that maybe this will be the day when you will come in to the world of truth. But what happens when the truth comes round the corner to meet you? I'm praying that that will happen today. When, when Jesus, who is the truth incarnate, walked into this woman's life, and, and her life was never the same again. I think this is the only occasion when, as, that I can think of, I may be wrong, but the only occasion when Jesus actually stepped outside the borders of uh, Israel into Gentile territory. Why? Uh, what's going on here? Uh, so I want to suggest three things. Just, I always have three points. They say with Welsh preachers, if you knock them over, they'll split into three. And I've just got three points I want you to see this morning. A, a divine appointment, a very awkward conversation, which you might have noticed as the passage was read, and an amazing outcome. So let's have a look at those three things. What's Jesus doing here? Uh, in, in Gentile territory, Why does he leave the promised land for pagan land? Some commentators suggest that he's he's on a bit of a a break. He's having a bit of a a holiday. He's he's been trying to get away for some time, ever since chapter 6. But the crowds keep catching up with him, clamoring for miracles. And here in chapter 7, he's just had a a rather heated exchange with the religious uh, teachers. And so this is what they suggest. He, He steps steps over the border to take some time out. That would explain the, uh, the tetchiness. I'm not sure if that's a Welsh word or an Australian word. The irritability of the, of, of the disciples. They're really annoyed with this woman. You might have picked that up. Certainly in Matthew's account, that comes out very strongly. Uh, they, they're really annoyed that this woman's interrupting their, their special time with Jesus, their, their, their holiday break. We're told in verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. He's trying to get away. And yet he could not keep his presence secret, it says. You know what it's like, isn't it? Just, uh, just as you're beginning to relax and unwind, the phone goes. I know it's your day off, but <laughs> maybe that's what it was like for Jesus on this particular occasion. Maybe it's a weekend away. Maybe that's what he's doing here in the vicinity of Tyre. He was... Uh, Fully divine, but he was also fully human. He had a body like our bodies. 
he uh, he needed company he needed uh, time out he he uh, he lived in a fallen world he was without sin but he he took upon himself sinful humanity in its fallenness uh, without sin so maybe maybe that's what's happening here but i want to suggest to you this morning that there is a deeper and a far more profound reason for this little excursion into gentile territory maybe and be known to to his disciples jesus has an appointment to keep with this poor woman an appointment made in eternity before he ever came into the world paul explains it in like this in romans chapter 8 and verse 28 you know it's a very well known verse isn't it we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who are the called according to his purpose that's the real i think that's the real behind the scenes explanation of what's happening here notice what paul says all things that includes a demon possessed daughter all things paul says work together for good for the good of those who are called by god to be his See, if you look at verse 25 we're told it what I mean what was it that brought this woman to Christ it was an unimaginable evil she had a demon possessed daughter we we really probably don't know very much about demon possession in here in the west and in australia very much i think in 50 years of ministry uh, so dane 50 years ago this year i i think i've only ever come across someone in that condition once uh we've seen kids on ice we've seen pictures of children running wild in our cities in the streets of brisbane and sydney and places like that recently totally out of control on drugs this is a thousand times worse than that this girl is this little girl is is possessed by by a demon by an evil spirit jc ryle says this mother no doubt had been sorely tried she'd seen her darling daughter vexed with the devil and been unable to relieve her but yet says ryle that trouble brought her to christ and taught her to pray without it she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen jesus at all surely it was good for her that she was afflicted says bishop ryle mark this well he says there's nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble we forget that every cross is a message from god and intended to do us good in the end trials are intended to make us think to wean us from the world to send us to the bible to drive us to our knees health is a good thing but sickness is far better if it leads us to god prosperity is a great mercy but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to christ anything anything is better says jc ryle anything anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin better a thousand times to be afflicted like this woman and like her flee to christ than to live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without christ and without hope don't you see then there is a great there's great blessing wrapped up in the ugly circumstances of this woman's life And that's what Paul means when he says all things work together 
for good. It's not a blanket statement, you know. It's the kind of thing you put on a calendar or send in a greetings card. It's not something sentimental. He's not saying, hey, she'll be right. He's not saying, well, just keep your chin up. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That's not what he's saying. That's, he's, that's fatalistic. Don't confuse this with, with fate. It'll all turn out all right in the end, people say, don't they? No, it won't, my friends. It won't. It won't turn out all right for you in the end unless you're, you're trusting in Jesus. But for those who do trust in Jesus, for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose, all things, even those things in your past that you're ashamed of, even those complicated things that you don't want people to know about, those things that were unimaginably difficult for you at the time, all those things, even though you weren't a Christian then, all these things, God has a way of working all these things together for your good. If you love him and if you trust him. See, God is not the author of evil. God is not to blame for all the bad things that happen to you. But he can use even the worst things to bring you to himself. And he does, doesn't he? So here's this poor woman in desperate need. And Jesus just happens to be there in the vicinity. What a stroke of luck. No, 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 no. It is the electing, predestinating love of God. And this sovereign God who, who is in control of all the circumstances of our lives can bring the greatest good out of the most unimaginable tragedy. You see that again and again in the scriptures, can't you? Think of Joseph and his brothers. They hated him. They, they threw him in a ditch, remember? They thought they, they got rid of him. And then to their amazement, years later, when there's a famine in the land and they have to go to Egypt to get corn, uh, they find themselves face to face with their brother. He's still alive. And you remember what Joseph says to them? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that's what God does. He's got a way of bringing good out of evil, of working everything together for the good of those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Think of the cross. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. See how these things come together? The most wicked thing you could imagine, deicide, taking hold of the Son of God, nailing into a cross, and yet according, it was all according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God took that greatest of all evils in order to bring the greatest good to the human race. Do you see? So, this is not an unwelcome interruption to Jesus' weekend away. It's the keeping of an appointment made in eternity. And it leads into a very awkward conversation, doesn't it? That's the second point. Just look at the way Jesus deals with this woman in her, in her need. It's really quite shocking. It doesn't sound like Jesus at all, does it? She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, it says in verse 26. And what does Jesus do? He insults her. It's not right, he says, to take the children's bed and to toss it to the dogs. That's no way to treat a lady, is it? I mean, at best, it's insensitive. 
At worst, it's downright rude and positively insulting. It's like calling me a taffy. You know, all Welsh people are called taffy. Taffy was a Welshman. Taffy was a thief. Taffy came to our house and stole a leg of beef. <laughs> or calling an Irishman paddy. You know, if you go to New York, they still have the paddy wagons for drunk Irishmen. <laughs> well, dog is a derogatory term for Gentile. Get away from me, you Gentile dog. What have I got to do with you? I came only for the lost tribes of the house of Israel, not for Gentiles like you. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like Jesus at all. It's sexist and racist and, and bigoted, isn't it? Or is it? See, Mark tells us that she was a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician. And if they were speaking Greek, as they almost certainly would have been if she was a Greek speaker rather than Aramaic, that the word would be a diminutive. In other words, it would be little dog or puppy dog. Now, it makes a bit of a difference. I mean, I, I, I don't think, uh, I wouldn't like to be called a dog, but I don't think I'd mind being called a puppy. Well, I would probably. <laughs> Not so much, though. You see, there's a playfulness about that, isn't there? We've got to try and think ourselves into this scene. And then, of course, you, see, you have to allow for the body language and the tone of voice and the twinkle in the eye. Well, I was, when I was ordained, uh, all those years ago, now half a century ago, uh, in Wales, I, I was the only evangelical in my presbytery. It was quite a large presbytery, geographically speaking, over three counties, was it? Brecon, Radnor, and Herefordshire. <laughs> and I was the only evangelical, straight from college, and all the others were gunning for me to try and cure me of my fundamentalism, as they called it. And there's one man in particular, he was determined to get me. And he kept wanting to make appointments to see me and, and uh, you know, let's have a meal or let's catch up for coffee. And, uh, and I kept, I, I knew what he was wanting to do. Uh, and I kept saying, oh, yeah, we must do that sometime. And then eventually he sort of, obviously, he could read my body language very well. <laughs> He says, well, you're saying, you're saying yes with your mouth, but your eyes are saying no. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. I had no intention of meeting up with him because I knew what, he was, what his agenda was. And, and, see, and when this woman comes to Jesus, something like that's happening, I think. She comes to Jesus begging for help, and, and he's aware of the racism of the disciples around him and the negativity coming off the, his disciples of standing around. Uh, and, uh, and as she comes to him, uh, asking for his help, he says no, but looks yes, I think. That might be a bit speculative, but I think that's something like that must have been happening. In other words, there was something in the tone of his voice and in the expression on his face that encouraged her to persist. Because persist she does, doesn't she? I think Jesus may well have been kind of picking up on the negative vibes from his disciples. Matthew tells us in his account that they'd been begging Jesus to send her away. Get rid of her. She's spoiling our holiday. And so Jesus says, maybe with a backward glance at his scowling disciples and then looking lovingly into the face of this woman, why should I help you? You know what we Jews call you Gentiles, don't you? Dogs, puppy dogs. Why should I take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Salvation is of the Jews. And you're a Gentile. Now, however you look at it, that's still pretty, pretty full on, isn't it? It's still pretty heavy. Still pretty offensive. 
except that she doesn't take offense. That's the remarkable thing. Did you notice that in verse 28? Yes, Lord, she says. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't argue with him. She, she agrees. She accepts what Jesus says. She doesn't say, but Lord, that's not fair. I didn't ask to be born and brought up outside of Israel. Anyway, she, why, why should you Jews have all the privileges? No, she doesn't argue with him. She, she agrees with him. Yes, Lord, she says. Whatever arrangements you make to bring grace to sinners is right. I wonder if you've understood that. Whatever arrangements you have made to bring grace, grace is God dealing with us not as we deserved. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And, and at the moment, God is dealing mercifully with the human race because we're not getting what we deserve, but grace is getting what we don't deserve. Become children of God, to be made right with God so that God looks at us and he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in his son. We don't deserve that. And, and, and she's saying, well, whatever arrangement you, you make to bring grace to sinners, she, she says, is right because no one deserves a crumb of your grace, let alone to sit down at the table and feast on it. And if you choose a nation... To sit at the table, well, that's grace. I'm not going to argue with that. If you choose a nation to sit at the table, that's grace. And if you give a little dog a crumb, that's grace. She's saying, Lord, if there's grace to be had, please may I have some. And Jesus calls that faith, do you see? She accepts, do you see what's happening? She accepts God's plan of salvation to the Jews first. And then to the Gentiles. She doesn't quarrel with that. She acknowledges that the Jews have first bite of the cherry, so to speak. She accepts that, that the Jews have first place in the economy of God's grace. She simply asks to be fed with the leftovers. And Jesus says to her in verse 29, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And that is an amazing outcome, isn't it? That's the, the third point. See, don't misunderstand what's happening here. It, it, this, this isn't a battle of wits. They're not scoring points off each other. Jesus is not saying, oh, you clever woman, you got the better of me there, you turned the tables on me. No, no, he's, he's simply recognizing her faith, this woman's faith. He's affirming her faith. Matthew makes that plain. Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. It's, it's, it's amazing because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew describes her as a Canaanite. He gives her that old kind of uh, label. And the Canaanites were the enemies of the Jews, weren't they? And, 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 and Matthew talks a lot about little faith. That, oh, you have little faith. And that phrase occurs a lot of times in Matthew's gospel. And, and, and the, 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 the leaders of Israel, who should have known better, they had no faith in Jesus. They didn't recognize him at all. And so the leaders had no faith, and the disciples had little faith, but this Gentile, this Canaanite woman, has great faith. <laughs> great is your faith, Jesus says to her. It's not a battle of wits. This is not repartee. They're not sparring partners. Her daughter is demon-possessed. That's not a subject to quip about, is it? No, this is faith. And do you see how faith works? It's personal, 
Faith, it's faith not in a set of facts, but it's faith in a person. She recognizes this person for who he is. She calls him Lord. Matthew tells us in his account, she gives him his full messianic title, Son of David. She trusts him. She, she recognizes that he's one who has authority over demons. He's able to cast a demon out of her daughter. She has such a great, such a view of the greatness of Christ. See, to, to have the devil cast out of her daughter was the greatest thing she could think of. It was the, her greatest need. It, it filled her waking moment. She couldn't think of anything else. It kept her awake at night praying. She couldn't think of anything greater for Jesus to do for her. But for him, it's nothing. It's just a crumb. Only a crumb of what he can do for his people. That's, faith. That's great faith, isn't it? And it's personal, it's in Jesus, and it's persistent. She, she, many people would have walked away, but she doesn't. She keeps coming back. Spurgeon illustrates it like this. It's a great illustration. Spurgeon has some fantastic illustrations. He says it's like turning a key in a lock. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get locked out of my own house because, especially if it's dark and I don't know which way to turn the key or how to get the key in the lock. Well, Spurgeon says, he talks about faith, he says it's like turning a key in the lock. The same key which locks will also unlock. It all depends on the turn of the key and still more on the turn of your thoughts. Do you see what he's saying? See, it looks like Jesus has just slammed the door in this woman's face, doesn't it? He shut her out. Not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But you see what faith does? Instead of going away with her tail between her legs, she takes hold of those very same words of Jesus which seem to lock her out of the kingdom and she turns them round the other way to open the door. Yes, Lord, she says. Agreed. But even, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, salvation is of the Jews. And you're the one they've all been waiting for. And I'm only a Gentile dog. I don't have a place at the table. But even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And so out of what appears to be a most discouraging truth, you see what she does? She finds consolation and help. That's the way faith works. And I want to say to you this, not one truth in the Bible that is meant to keep you away from Jesus. If you think there is, then you're reading it the wrong way. Take this difficult doctrine of election. Many people use that as an excuse, don't they, to walk away from Jesus. They say, well, well, if I'm, I'm to think I'm one of the elect, you know, or uh, I'm not one of the chosen few. Whoever said anything about the chosen few, the Bible doesn't talk about the chosen few, does it? He says uh, that there are more than can be numbered in the end from all tribes and nations and language groups all around the world. God is generous in his grace. He doesn't just parcel it out to the chosen few. <laughs> but some people see this doctrine of election and they, uh, they use it as an excuse to walk away from Jesus. She sees this doctrine of election and she turns the key the other way in the lock, doesn't she? Yes, God has chosen the Jews to be his people. They are the children at the table, presently being fed in the economy of God's grace. Yes, Lord. But surely, if you are a God of such generosity, a God of sovereign electing grace, then there must be some left over for me. If I can't sit at the table, at least let me crawl under it. 
That's faith, isn't it? That's the way faith works. Some people see election as a narrow doctrine. It makes God out to be less than generous, parceling out his grace to the chosen few, but faith doesn't ever see it that way. Faith takes hold of the truth of election. And instead of being discouraged by faith, by it, faith lays hold of it. She doesn't say, oh, well, I'm not one of the elect. No. That's unbelief. Faith takes hold of this very same truth and turns it uh, like a key in the lock. A God who can elect a whole nation to such privileges will surely have grace enough and to spare for me. Do you get the point? There's not a truth, there's not a doctrine in the Bible that's meant to keep you from coming to Christ. If, if you think there is, sit down and talk with someone because you're reading the Bible the wrong way. Go to a Christianity explored group and check it out for yourself because his heart is full of love for the lost. Jesus weeps over the multitudes. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He yearns for them to come to him. He's full of grace. Unbelief shuts us out and locks up the Bible. Faith brings us in. It unlocks all the doors and overcomes all the obstacles. It brings us into the world of truth. And that's what's happening here. This poor woman who's lived all her life just around the corner from the world of truth, a Gentile by birth and upbringing, an alien to the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants and promises, without hope and without God in the world, now by faith she enters in. She lays hold of Christ. And she will not take no for an answer. See, and isn't that the real irony, you see, of this story? Because that's why Mark places it here where he does in his gospel, back to back with the unbelief of Israel's leaders. You know what Israel means, don't you? You know where that name comes from. We saw it in our Old Testament reading. Jacob wrestling with God, saying to him, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God says to him, your name will no longer be called Jacob, which means kind of twister or deceitful one. Or Your name will no longer be called Jacob. Apologies to any Jacobs. <laughs> your name will no longer be called Jacob. It will be Israel, because you've struggled with God and have prevailed, you see. And if that's what Israel means, it means, well, this woman is an Israelite, isn't she? She's recognized the son of David, the Jewish Messiah. She's come to him with her need. She's wrestled with him and she's prevailed. There's a kind of lovely cheekiness about her faith, don't you think? It's his day off. He's on holiday. The disciples have put a do not disturb sign on his door. That doesn't stop her. He's otherwise engaged. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That doesn't stop her either. The time of the Gentiles is coming. You see, it's fast approaching. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for her sins. He's going to rise on the third day and ascend into heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And she's got her foot in the door already. He's going to fling open the doors to the Gentiles, to the nations. The time of the Gentiles is coming. And she's not going anywhere until Jesus gives her what she asks. She's got her foot in the door. That's what faith does. That's what you must do. If you're living just around the corner from the world of truth. 
Don't stay there. Come in. Take hold of Jesus. See him for who he is. Read the Gospels. Do a Christianity Explorer course. Check it out for yourself. See who he is. I don't know if I should say this, but sometimes I find it helpful to... Well, one or two people I've been dealing with fairly recently have had trouble with believing that Jesus could possibly save them. I've pointed them to that television series, The Chosen. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's pretty accurate. It's a very good... Um, uh, it, of course, it's, 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 it's a man-made production, and it's, it's not the Bible. And if people won't read the Bible, uh, but it's, it's a, I think it's a good way of getting people to read the Gospels. Look at this person. Why wouldn't you trust a person like this? See how he reacts, see how, see how he relates to people, how he interacts with people, with all their difficulties and, and, and issues when they come to him. Why can't you trust a person like that? Take hold of him as he's presented to you in the gospel. Read a gospel and don't let him go until he blesses you. That's what faith does. Ask, Jesus says, and keep on asking. Seek. And you shall find. Knock and keep on knocking. And the door will be open to you. Do it now. Now is the time to do it. Now is the time of the Gentiles. Now is the, the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time to come in into the world of truth.